The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. I feel like a vice principal at an assembly. I even have my shirt tucked in today. <laughs> well, today begins the second week in our three-week series about the person of Christ. And uh, last week we talked about Christ the teacher. And if you missed last week's message or any of the messages that we've ever had here, you want to go back and listen to them, you can always get them via the Artisan Church podcast, which uh, you can search for in iTunes, or you can uh, go to artisanchurch.com slash podcast or find it there. Um, that's always good to know uh, for when you're traveling and you just, you got to have some connection to, to your home church or whatever. But uh, Last week was Christ the Teacher, and we talked about how Jesus taught and why He taught and some of the things, what, the what that He taught. Uh, next week we'll be talking about Christ as a King, but today's sermon is about Christ the Prophet another role that uh, Jesus filled during His ministry. And I want to talk about this in two different ways. I want to talk about Jesus as a prophet, and I also want to talk about Jesus as the prophet. And we'll get to what that second one means in a little bit, but let's start out talking about Jesus as a prophet, just a prophet. And uh, the Bible defines Him as such, the New Testament. um, in a couple different places you see it, but one of the uh, clearest ones is in Luke 24, 19, uh, where he's described as Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. Now, the interesting thing about that particular quotation is that those words are actually being spoken to Jesus. <laughs> uh, it's one of the great stories in the Bible where after the resurrection, Jesus comes and and walks with some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they don't recognize him. And he says, you know, why so glum? <laughs> and, and they haven't seen him yet, resurrected Christ. And so they say, haven't you heard what's going on, you know, about what happened to Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people? And uh, if you haven't looked into that story, the road to Emmaus, I encourage you to look at it. It's really a very interesting story. So we have him defined as a prophet, but what does that mean? What does it even mean to be a prophet? And um, some of the time that we've talked about prophets here at Artisan, uh, you may recall that we have a, maybe a different definition of what a, what a biblical prophet is than you might assume if you just came into the, the, the Word and thought, okay, he's a prophet. That must mean he what? He tells the future, right? He's like a religious Nostradamus or something, right? We've talked about this before, but the role of the prophet um, in the Old Testament, and I think this would be consistent with what Jesus did when he came, was sometimes predictive. Sometimes they would make predictions, but really more often the role of a prophet was to call people's attention to God, and particularly the attention of the religious community to God uh, when it had strayed from where it should be. And 
So the Old Testament prophets would talk to the kings of Israel, and they would talk to the priests, and they would say, uh, in no uncertain terms, sometimes with dramatic displays, um, you need to turn back to God. And so a simple definition of, of a prophet is this. It's someone who calls people back to God when they've lost their focus or gone astray. And so this is the kind of uh, definition that we're working with here. Now, Jesus, like some of the Old Testament prophets, did make some predictive prophecies. He predicted the destruction of the temple, for example, or uh, that his disciples would be persecuted. He predicted his own uh, return. Um, He predicted some things about the the end of all things. And um, those are interesting and there would probably be some value in examining the, the predictive prophecies of Jesus, and, and maybe we'll do that sometime, uh, but not today. Today's not really, let's not really want to go with it today. Um, instead, I want to talk about Jesus as that classic Old Testament prophet, speaking truth to power, speaking to the religious establishment of his day. Now, as I mentioned, in the Old Testament, that religious establishment was kings and priests. That was where the the power of the religious order was centralized. And so the prophets would speak to kings and priests. And that was less true at the time of Jesus, um, in part because of the political situation they were in. They weren't really able to have a true king as they'd had at certain times in their history. Uh, but, but the religious establishment that Jesus spoke to in his day, I think, was composed of uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. Now, who were these people? The, the Pharisees, we're all familiar with that term. Um, it's kind of used uh, as an analog today for anybody who is a moralist. Uh, but the Pharisees were experts in the law, very often religious teachers, and they were, they were strict moralists. And so they would not only follow the law, but they would do what was called, what they said, they're going to put a hedge around the law. We're going to put an extra, we're going to go that extra mile just so that we don't even come close to breaking the law. So if you can only walk for a mile on the Sabbath, we're only going to walk a half a mile. Um, And these were the Pharisees. And as is so often the case with people who want to be strict moralists uh, religiously, their problem was not so much that they wanted to be strict for themselves, but that they wanted to uh, do that so that they could then point out all the ways that other people were not being as strict. And so they were elevating themselves and denigrating others and Jesus had some very strong words for them. Um, he, he, he called them at one point whitewashed tombs. You know, all pretty on the outside, but dead and decaying on the inside. The Sadducees uh, were a particular sect of Judaism that uh, rejected anything outside the letter of the Hebrew Bible. They were kind of like the equivalent of of uh, judicial constructionists, if you're uh, into U.S. history at all. But, so they would say, if it doesn't say it in the law, you can't do it. Whereas other people would say, well, it doesn't say anything against it in the law. Well, let's go for it. <laughs> right? We all like that interpretation. Um, Sadducees would say, no, only what's in there. And there are certain, there's probably some corresponding Christian groups today, uh, groups who say the New Testament doesn't have any evidence of uh, musical instruments in worship, and so we're not going to use musical instruments in worship, for example. But um, the Sadducees were one of the other religious establishments that had lots of power and control in certain uh, pockets of Jewish culture at the time of Jesus, and, and he responded to them as well. 
And then, of course, the, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish legal council, which was kind of the Jewish court, uh, where if you were really in hot water, you would go and, and be tried, and they would determine how to apply the law to you. And uh, Jesus was called before the Sanhedrin, um, and it started a chain of events that led to his execution. But um, along the way, he had some strong words for them as well. So Jesus was a prophet in the, in the classic Old Testament sense of the word, speaking truth to power, challenging the religious establishment. And I think that the obvious uh, application question that we might ask today is, uh, who is today's religious establishment? Right? If Jesus were here now, um, a prophet speaking to the religious establishment, to whom would he be speaking? And uh, maybe a better question, because we all really know it's us, right? <laughs> uh, we're kind of the, the church is sort of the established religious authority. Um, maybe a better question would be, how can we avoid the type of challenges that Jesus makes to religious establishment? Um, how can we avoid being like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin? I'll come back to that because I have some thoughts on that, but I don't think it's quite as simple as, as we might say. You might want to just say, well, we don't, let's just not tell other people how to live their lives or something like that. We won't be Pharisees. No, let's not be so strict about the Bible. We won't be Sadducees. No. But I don't think it's quite that simple. We'll come back to that. I want to talk also about the fact that Jesus was not only a prophet, again in that classic Old Testament sense, but also the prophet. What do I mean by that? Well, to answer that question, you have to understand a little bit of the Jewish understanding of the prophetic role at the time of Jesus. Now, to the Jews, there was and is no greater prophet than Moses, right? When the Old Testament describes the death of Moses, in fact, it, it adds a little editorial comment. This is Deuteronomy 34.10, saying that there's never been another prophet like him since. Deuteronomy 34.10 says, Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The prophet was the, truly was the highest calling in the Jewish religious structure because it was the prophets who, as I mentioned, really spoke to those who were in official authority. And so if you had a good prophet, that was pretty much as high as you could get. And to the Jewish people, there was no greater prophet than Moses. And so Moses was the greatest of the great. In the, central, in, in, the, in the Jewish faith. Never since has there been another prophet like him. But that editorial comment written in Deuteronomy uh, on, when it's telling the story of Moses' death happened at a particular point in time, and it, it said never had there been one to that point. And yet there was a very real sense of anticipation that there would be. In fact, that sense of anticipation came from something Moses himself said. Moses made a, a predictive prophecy. Right? If you want to look along uh, with me, you can look at Deuteronomy 18. And uh, if, you, if you want to use the red Bibles under your chair, this is page 153. I'll read a few verses from here. You can also just listen if you prefer. 
Um, and by the way, as I always say, if you don't have a Bible, you can always take one of these red ones home with you. You can give one to a friend. Um, we use them here, but they're also to be taken out. I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Now, you have to understand, the book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses talking to the Israelites on the cusp of the promised land. He's not going to go in with them. Uh, he's been told that he's not going to go in because he, he disobeyed the Lord. But he's led them there, and he's about to bring them in. And what he does on the edge of, on the border of, of the promised land is retell the entire story of the history of faith, which is really what we aim to do when we worship together, isn't it? To, to retell and reenact the story of our faith. And so they were doing this, and Moses was was retelling the whole story and, and reminding them of the central truths of their faith. And then he makes this, this prophecy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, if I hear the voice of the Lord my God anymore or ever see again this great fire, I will die. Then the Lord replied to me, they are right in what they have said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything that I command. He goes on a little bit more about that role. But a very clear, very important historical prophecy by Moses about the coming of another prophet like him. Now, a little later in the book, you get that, that little uh, editorial comment that there hadn't, that hadn't happened yet at the time of his death. There's no, there was no replacement for, for Moses at that point. And the New Testament actually refers back to this passage in a number of places, um, including probably the one that I, I read at the very beginning this morning um, about the, when the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, they were talking about Jesus as a prophet. That may actually refer to, to they may have been saying, he is the prophet, um, but even if they weren't, there's other instances in the New Testament where people clearly were saying that. You know the story of the feeding of the 5,000, probably. It's one of the most famous miracles of, of Jesus in John chapter 6. And John 6, 14 says that after, after this, this multiplication of fishes and loaves so that all these people could eat, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're connecting him to that prophecy that Moses made. They're saying, this is the one. And that, that Deuteronomy passage is also directly quoted, not, not just referred to, but quoted directly, verbatim, by the Apostle Peter in a sermon. If you want to look at that, it's Acts chapter 3. He's giving a sermon. And, and when you hit verse 22, you, he, he quotes this passage from Deuteronomy saying that the, this other prophet's going to come, and he's... He's very clearly saying that Jesus is the prophet. So when I talk about Jesus as the prophet, not just a prophet, but the prophet, this is what I mean. This is a, it's a historical statement that he is the one that Moses predicted. The highest of the high in the historic Jewish faith. So he was a prophet in his work as he spoke truth to the religious establishment. And he was also the prophet capital P, promised by Moses. So you have sort of a, a, a spiritual statement about Jesus and a, a historical religious statement about Jesus that, that I've made. 
But as we begin to, to wrap up this morning, I want to say a few words to those of us who might be a little bit disappointed. There are probably a few of us in the room, and, and some days I'm one of them, who really want to get into that predictive stuff. Oh, give me this boring, blasé, spiritual statements. Don't tell me all this tedious history. Uh, don't connect the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm not interested in that. I just want to know what he means when he says all this crazy stuff. Because he did make some of those predictions, as I mentioned. My response to that is actually to use his own words in response to a similar question that his disciples posed to him. Um, just before Jesus made a very long string of predictive prophecies, he had made just one. He made one little little comment, sort of a cryptic thing. And his disciples came to him afterward, and they said in, the, in their disciply little way, you know, like, teacher, I know what you meant, but these other guys, they're not quite sure, and I've tried to explain it to them. They're just not getting it. Could, for their sake, could you please explain what you mean? <laughs> right? Luke 21.7, the, the specific question that they ask is, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? Jesus' response to this perfectly honest but utterly misguided question was really like vintage Jesus. It was classic, typical Jesus. Um, he didn't answer the question at least not in the way that they wanted him to answer the question. Now, remember, the question was very specific. It would not have been difficult for Jesus just to say, like, mark your calendars and look for, you know, a yellow Lamborghini, right? Like, there's the time and there's a sign. You'll be fine. That may have been an anachronism. I'm not sure. <laughs> the question was very simple. When is it going to happen, and what's a sign we can look for? What's the first thing out of Jesus' mouth? It's very telling. He says, beware that you are not led astray. And then he goes on to tell them, you know, to let them know a couple of things to look for, most of which involve their, their um, torture and imprisonment <laughs> and death. Uh, so they didn't want that answer either. But they really didn't want to hear, beware that you're not led astray. That doesn't even make any sense. That wasn't the question. I appreciate that you're looking out for me, Jesus, but could you please give me the date and a sign? It was almost as if he was warning them that they were going about thinking about this in the wrong way. And, and the way they were thinking about it was going to lead them down the wrong path. In other words, he was saying to them, Listen, if you make that question the most important question, you are going to be an easy target for false prophets. She goes on to talk about some. Is that not still true today? Those within the Christian community who are most concerned with trying to figure out exactly what the end times are going to look like, 
man, is their pump ever primed for some shyster to come along and say, this is exactly what it means, and if you send me money, I will help you find the right way. If you buy my books, you'll be all set. You'll be prepared. When you make that question, when exactly is this going to happen? What are the specific signs that we should look for? If those are the types of questions that you're asking, you are an easy target for any number of lies. And it occurred to me this week as I was, I was looking more closely at this passage, I'd never quite noticed that that was, I've seen that story a bunch of times, but I'd never quite noticed that that, that was the first thing Jesus said in response to this question. And I realized that that's exactly what I want to say. <laughs> Whenever somebody asks me, you know, what does 666 mean? Or are we ever going to study the book of Revelation? <laughs> or do you think left behind the book is true? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that last one. <laughs> I'm actually not going to answer any of those questions, but especially not that last one. Um, that's the response I want to give is beware that you are not led astray because you are really, really looking for trouble. It's not that you shouldn't think about those things and try to figure them out. It's that if you make that the most important thing, it's going to mess you up. Let me give you an example. The evangelical movement, um, which now has come to be synonymous with fundamentalism, unfortunately, because fundamentalism and evangelicalism had a very specific historical split in the early 20th century. They said, we are disagreeing. Let's change our names, right? Um, but the evangelical church, as it started in the uh, late 19th century, was profoundly active in social justice and social action, involved with women's suffrage, involved with abolition of slavery, um, often involved in the prohibition movement, which is, you know, one that I don't necessarily think is quite as in line with uh, <laughs> what God wants as the first two, um, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but the evangelical church was deeply active in that until it, was started, to, it started to become infiltrated by people who had a particular view of how the world would end, which has now become very much the mainstream view, but was, is, is basically unique in historical Christianity. If you look over the last uh, 2,000 years, um, very recently is the only time we have thought that Jesus is going to come back and sweep us all away and then like lay waste to everything after we're safely tucked away in heaven. Right? That's a fairly new development, uh, a fairly new interpretation of, of the predictions about the time, how the world's going to end. And it had a consequence. People became so wrapped up in that interpretation of how the world would end that they began to say, we've been worrying about all this, like, like taking care of people and like women's rights and freeing the slaves. What we really need to worry about is making sure that everybody gets saved like now because if they're not, then Jesus is not going to take them away when the rapture happens and they're going to be left behind. I promised I wasn't going to do that. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's turn our churches into conversion factories rather than agents of change in the world. And they became preoccupied with the question that's not the right question, which is what time and what's the sign. It's not that that's unimportant. It's that it's not most important. 
So I want to say, beware that you are not led astray as you're examining those questions. Jesus was, a, was clearly a prophet who had things to say, uh, predictive things to say about how things would come to pass. But he was also a prophet who could look piercingly at our present and call us away from our favorite religious excuses and, and spiritual distractions, call us back to the core of, of serving God the Father. And, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to pick on the fundamentalists, right? And say, oh, they're the Pharisees. Jesus didn't like the Pharisees, and I don't like them. And, you know, that's probably true. They probably are the modern-day Pharisees, and, and sometimes when we act that way, we are the modern-day Pharisees. And that's too easy. And if there's one thing we've seen uh, from last week, it's that Jesus does not allow us the easy way out. He doesn't give us the quick answer, right? So I want to ask us to do something that's a little bit more honest. I think our cultural religious problem today is is more that we think that we are the king and we are the priest. We Protestants have taken this priesthood of all believers thing, which is a wonderful doctrine, and said um, everybody's the high priest, right? And I can decide whatever I want about what I believe. All I need is the Bible and, and some sense that I think the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. And oh, by the way, I'm the king of my castle. That's a very American concept. I'm, I'm in charge of everything that goes on around me, and if you disagree with me, that's because you're probably part of a different kingdom, right? It's very easy to do that. And so Jesus, as the classic Old Testament prophet who's speaking to the kings and to the priests, I think wants to speak to us individually as well and to say, you have got it wrong and to call us back. Now, it's going to look different for each one of us. I can't tell you what that's going to look like for you, but I can tell you that I, I, I do think that's how Jesus is going to operate if you will stop for a minute and listen to him. And so, as we close our time this morning, I actually want us to stop for a minute and listen to him. And I'm going to give you a few minutes of silence, and I want you to think about this concept as of Jesus as a prophet, not speaking to some outside religious establishment that we can also throw stones at, because it's easy. Fred Phelps or whoever you might, might bring to mind, right? But as someone who's speaking to the own, our own little religious establishment that we've created around ourselves as individuals, and somewhat as a, as a church body, but, but as individuals. So take just a few minutes of silence as we finish this morning and uh, meditate on that and, and listen for what Jesus the prophet might be saying to you
Well, you may not really have a, a clear word or a clear sense that doesn't always happen when you, when you stop and be silent for a few minutes, but it pretty much never happens if you don't stop and be silent for a few minutes, so it's always worth trying. <laughs> I'll tell you mine. I, I feel like Jesus the prophet is saying to me um, that, that I, have, I have failed to go to the Word sometimes. Um, and for me, I, I have to be in the Bible to a certain extent to do my job. I can't really preach if I don't at least read something during the week. <laughs> um, but I kind of get the sense that, that maybe I need to work a little harder at just being in the Word for the sake of being in the Word and not as a utilitarian purpose. So that's mine. Uh, you don't have to shout yours out, but if you would like to share yours with somebody, um, you're more than welcome to share it with me. You could do that via the info card if you want to, or you could just send me an email, or you could talk to me. Um, but these things tend to float away really fast if you don't share them with somebody. So I would encourage you to share that if you, if you did hear some kind of word from Jesus the prophet for your own little kingdom, to share that with somebody before you leave today. Um, and uh, now as we respond to the word, I'd invite you to come and participate in the Lord's Supper, the uh, ritual whereby Christians for centuries have retold the story of Jesus, just as Moses told the story of the Israelites on the cusp of the promised land. We retell the death and resurrection story of Jesus Christ each Sunday when we come together and and uh, you can take that bread and, and tear a piece and dip it in wine or juice, whatever's more appropriate for you and for your family. Uh, and as you do that, um, do it in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus our Lord and receive it as food for your souls and as a unifying sacrament that connects you to each other and to Jesus and to the historical church and to Christians all around the world who are doing the same thing at some point today. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you, you don't feel like this was something you want to participate in, um, you're more than welcome to continue to sit quietly and meditate or pray. And uh, We'll continue in worship. This table will be open for the rest of our time together. And so come uh, if you hear the call of Jesus on your life. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com/podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.